Well, good morning. So happy to be with you this morning and continue celebrating the good news that Jesus uh, came to earth to save us from our sins. Um, as I'm getting set up here, uh, if you want to turn to Romans chapter 6, it's page 1344 in your pew Bible. And just uh, have it open, ready to go, or on your electronic device. We're going to be looking at that this morning. I want to continue looking at the, at the good news of the gospel. Uh, I feel like the Lord has really given me uh, something to share. Um, and I just hope I can share it without getting too much in the way myself. I also wanted to make a little comment here. There, there's a little uh, typo. Some of you on your outline, you, you have uh, instead of points one, two, three, four, there's points five, six, seven, eight. My bad typo. So what we're going to have to do is half of you go to sleep for the first four points and then wake up for the last four points and then the rest of you can go to sleep for the last four. No, no, it's just one, two, three, four. Why bother? <clears throat> Why bother? It's a question that made me stop and think. Not long ago, I was explaining to a friend, a friend who is not a believer in Jesus, that a Christian is saved by grace. That eternal life is a free gift offered to us on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. It's not something that we earn by doing good deeds. I was so pleased at having the chance to share the good news. And I thought that I had made my point. I had made the most important point that really needed to be made. Score one for the good guys, right? And then it happened. He hit me with a question. In short, it was just three words. So, why bother? So why bother? Why bother doing good if my eternal destiny doesn't depend on it? Why bother to do good if it doesn't really count? Why stay on the straight and narrow if in the end, God's going to forgive everything? Why make the effort to push the gas pedal when I can get to heaven on cruise control? After all, who would put money in the bank if the account balance was $10 million, no matter what, how much you put in or how much you took out? Who would bother studying if they knew that they were guaranteed a perfect score on the exam? Who would watch their diet? Who would bother exercising if their body somehow magically maintained the ideal proportions and they were supernaturally preserved in perfect health? If you follow this line of thinking, the implication is this. Really what he was saying was, is your so-called good news just doesn't make sense. Doesn't add up. That's not how the world works. Christian worldview, in other words, is not coherent, and so your gospel really is not good news at all. After all, if eternal life is a free gift and God is going to forgive me for every evil deed, there'd be no point, no incentive to stay on the straight and narrow. In fact, just look, look around at, at, at the results of your so-called good news. The world is full of hypocrites, people who say they believe in Jesus, but who commit all kinds of immoral and unethical acts. In fact, it seems that the more public a person's proclamations of religious faith, the more perverse his private behavior. Now, my friend didn't say all these things, but I understood his implications. It was time for me to put up or shut up, time to demonstrate the coherence of the Christian worldview. What do I say? How do I respond? Well, I said what first came to my mind, that a Christian does good out of love and thanksgiving. A true believer so loves God and is so thankful for Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice on the cross that he willingly dedicates himself to serving God. A true un Christian understands God's commandments to love him with all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself. And a true Christian obeys these commandments out of a thankful heart. Now I'd heard that answer given plenty of times before to similar questions and I'd even given that answer before myself. But for some reason, this time it didn't quite ring true. It wasn't so much that it didn't seem to convince my friend. I wasn't really expecting to convince him, which says more about my lack of faith than his. That's a subject for another sermon. But <clears throat> I needed to sort this all out for myself. See, the problem with my answer wasn't that it didn't really convince my friend. It was that it didn't really convince me. I couldn't quite put my finger on it at the time, but there was something missing. Yes, there's truth to the idea that good works flow out of a heart that is bursting with thanksgiving. 
I'm not denying that. But is that truly the ultimate biblical answer to the question, why bother? I started thinking, why bother? Why should I not sin? Why should I pursue goodness and flee evil? In addition to love, in addition to love for and thanksgiving toward God, I came up with a bunch of reasons. And they're all scriptural. A Christian bothers because a Christian has reverence for and holy fear for God. A Christian bothers simply because disobedience, uh, simply because obedience, sorry, is commanded. A Christian bothers because he simply does not have the right to do otherwise. The Bible tells us we're not our own. We could go on. We do good because we are blessed when we are a blessing to others. We obey because it produces in us personal spiritual growth and develops our Christian character. We obey because we have hope and faith that this world is not all there is, that we are storing up treasures in heaven, that we are waiting with perseverance, looking forward to that future grace and glory that will be revealed to us. All these are true. All these are good reasons to bother. They're all scripturally sound reasons. And we could spend a sermon probably on each one. But I'm convinced that they are not the best answer. They don't quite reach the ground floor, the answer that undergirds all these other answers. And part of that, the reason I think that is because any and every religion can and does operate according to similar principles. Even, even the secular world operates along similar lines. You know, the idea that you do good for someone who has done, done you good. You honor the sacrifice that others have made. And when you do good, you build your own character. They're all good principles, and they all have biblical roots, and I'm not arguing against them. But I'm saying that there is a foundational biblical reason why a Christian bothers. So what is that biblical answer? Why bother to do good if we are saved by God's grace? Why bother to do good if we are made righteous through somebody else's, namely Jesus' obedience? And now we come to uh, point one on your outline, or point five for some of you. Paul asked the same question. It took a while for me, but I finally wondered what we should normally always wonder right off the bat. Is there somewhere in the Bible where this question is addressed head on? And there is, of course. But before, before we go there, I just want to say up front, maybe this seems like an intellectual exercise to some of you. Maybe it's a bit too finely tuned apologetics that's of interest only to bespectacled scholars with their noses buried in dusty books. But the answer to this question is not, is not the confectionery sugar dusting on the jelly donut of Christianity. It's actually the jelly at the center of everything. And if we haven't tasted that jelly, my friends, we don't know what the good news is really all about. And it goes beyond just head knowledge. When we understand what the good news is really all about, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, when we understand what Jesus has done to us, my friends, every moment, every thought, every word, every action in our lives takes on a whole new meaning. So follow along with me as we look into God's word for the answer, and we'll come back to the jelly and the amazing applications at the end of the sermon. So we have our Bibles open to Romans 6. I don't. Let me see if I can find it. Hopefully my Bible falls open to it at this point. Um, we're <clears throat> so we're going to read uh, Romans 6. This is the passage that God drew my attention to as I pondered over the question, what is the biblical response to why bother? I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Here Paul writes to the Romans, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. 
For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you that it answers the tough questions that, that we have to face. Father, I pray as, as we look deeper into uh, what Paul has written here, Lord, what your spirit spoke to us through him. Father, I just pray that uh, my words would be clear um, and that uh, I wouldn't get in the way, Lord, but that your truth would, would come forth. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work among us and that we would be changed as we continue to have your word just permeate our lives and our, our spirits and our hearts. And we thank you that we have this time together in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so let's start with verse number one. <clears throat> Here Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin so that grace may increase? There it is. The Bible does ask, why bother? Now the author of Romans, Paul, doesn't actually use the phrase why bother, but he's asking the same question and is even expressing the same sort of attitude when he says, are we to continue to sin that grace may increase? First, let me explain why I say that Paul's question is the same as why bother, and then we'll look at Paul's answer. To understand the question, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase, we need first to look at the question that precedes it. The first question there is, what shall we say then? And here we find this key word, then. That signals to us that we need to look back into what Paul's already written to get into the flow of the discussion here. So let's briefly do that. We have to look back into chapter 3 where Paul explains the bad news that every human being from Adam to Abraham to Paul to you and me has turned aside from God's law. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. And Paul builds his case that there is no way that we can work out of this situation. The law speaks in chapter 3, verse 19. The law speaks, Paul says, and every mouth is shut. All the world becomes accountable to God because all have broken the law. And there's no way we can unbreak what we have broken. Obedience to part of the law, some of the time, does not equal full and true obedience to God. But the bad news gets worse. We are condemned not only on account of our own disobedience, we are condemned because we are all born members of a corrupt race. That's a big, big part of chapter 5. See, for example, verse 18 of chapter 5, where Paul says that through the one transgression, that is Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. It's a hopeless situation. Adam broke God's law. Lawlessness became the inheritance of every human being. And every human being continued on in that tradition of breaking the law. And the just desserts of breaking God's law is death. And that means more than just the end of physical life. It means eternal separation from the light and the love of God. It means hell. But God didn't leave mankind condemned to hell. Chapter 5 also has the wonderful good news that, familiar verses, verse 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And verse 8, chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And because Jesus died for us, we are justified, Paul says. We're saved from God's righteous wrath, the due punishment for our disobedience. That's in verse 9 of chapter 5. And we are reconciled to God. Paul talks about that in verses 10 and 11, chapter 5. The remarkable thing about all this is that this salvation, this reconciliation is given as a free gift Romans 3.23, Romans 5.15. It's a gift of God's grace. It's not earned by good works. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, Paul says in 3.20. Rather, the free gift is given to the one who has faith in Jesus, 3.28. And we are made righteous based on Jesus' obedience. He says in 5.18, 
Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. So all this, the bad news and the good news, leads Paul to sum up at the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, where he writes, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's reveling here in the truth that we are not under law, but under grace, as we read at the end of our passage in uh, Romans 6, 14. And, that, and the way he's laid it out, he's shown that grace is necessary for our salvation. We are corrupt by nature and by our own actions, so there's no way for us to work our way towards God, no way to reach up to him. But God reached down to us. He sent Christ to live a righteous life and to take the punishment for our sins and his death on the cross. This is God's gracious and free gift to us. Salvation is all because of his grace. And by, by his grace, he's a, his grace has abounded to cover all our sins and cause us to be counted righteousness, righteous and granted us the free gift of eternal life. How great, how great is God's grace? But then comes that question. If God's grace is so great and that greatness is demonstrated in his counting us sinners righteous, why wouldn't it make sense for us to just keep on sinning all the more so that his grace is magnified all the more? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And that's not me asking a nitpicky academic question. It's not my friend taking a swipe at the coherence of the Christian worldview. This is Paul raising an important point as part of his extensive explanation here of what it really means to be saved, what it really means to be a Christian. So what's the answer? Why bother? Paul's answer is really spectacular. In fact, it takes up pretty much the bulk of the next three chapters of Romans, 6, 7, and 8. And at the end of this answer, he reaches this stunning conclusion, uh, chapter 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who is against us? In all these things, verse 37, chapter 8, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How does this happen? How do we get from why bother to we overwhelmingly conquer because God is for us? Well, it's just a hop, a skip, and a jump. Three stages. I hope you can stick with me here. First, the hop. There's been a miraculous mortality. It's point two in your outline. A miraculous mortality in the life of every Christian. Then the skip, which is point three on your outline. There is now a miraculous motivator in the heart of every Christian. And lastly, the jump. That miraculous mortality and that miraculous motivator equate to a miraculous metamorphosis. We are changed. We are no longer what we once were. We are new creations in Christ. We're no longer condemned slaves. We are glorified conquerors. And that's the jelly that I was talking about earlier. That transformation on the inside has implications for our behavior on the outside. Let me explain a little more what I'm talking about. Let's start with a hop. In conversion, God causes a miraculous mortality. If we look at the first part of Paul's answer to the question, why bother? What we read is, don't you know you're dead? At least that's my rephrasing of Paul's answer. It's there in verses 2 and 3. Actually, his answer comes in the form of two questions. They're two rhetorical questions. First, he says, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's verse 2. And second, in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? What Paul is telling us is that in the life of every Christian, there is a death, a supernatural death, a death to sin. That's what I'm calling a miraculous mortality. Let's start with Paul's first question there in verse 2. What does he mean by dead to sin? Death here means a separation that results in freedom. Being dead to sin means that we have been separated from sin and we are freed from it. There are two aspects to this freedom. We could think of these in terms of justification and sanctification. Or as the old hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, says uh, when it speaks of Jesus' death being the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. So we have that justification, that sanctification, that uh, salvation from wrath, and that making of us pure. So first I want to talk about justification. Think about it in terms of it's a change in our relationship with God. 
Because of Jesus' death on the cross, our guilt and God's wrath are taken away. That's what justification is all about, that because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, God considers us as no longer being guilty for those sins. We're no longer held accountable for them. There's a change in our relationship with God. He forgives us. If we confess our sins, we know God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, 1 John. Paul talks about this justification in chapter 5, where he says in uh, verse 9 in chapter 5, we shall be saved from the wrath. And in verse 10, he says we are reconciled to God. We are free from our guilt before God and free from the penalty due for our sin. That's justification. This news in itself is so wonderful, just this news itself, that it ought to change our lives. It ought to cause our hearts to look at life from a whole new perspective. We used to owe God a debt we could not repay. We used to be condemned prisoners destined for hell. And God, through Christ, paid our debt. God, through Christ, frees us from prison and guarantees us heaven. That should result in, in the springing up in our hearts of thankfulness so boundless, a debt of gratitude so profound, an appreciation so deep. How could we continue to sin? Our sin was the offense that had brought us under condemnation in the first place, our, the rebellion that put us in prison, the reason for the debt that we owed. Now that we are free, would it not be the epitome of thanklessness to add to that debt? Jesus paid the penalty for our sin with his life. We were bought with a price, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. And, and Peter tells us the same thing. We were bought with a price, Jesus' precious blood. Would not continuing in sin be a betrayal of Christ's sacrifice? Would it not be a slap in the, to the face of our Savior? Would it not be like Judas's kiss? Well, it would. All these things are true. Our hearts ought to be filled to overflowing with thankfulness, and we ought to respond to God's amazing grace with obedience to him. But I'm convinced that's not all there is to it, and that's not all that Paul has in mind, in here, mind here. The good news of the gospel is so much better than just, and that's amazing, okay? It's so much better than this. So much better than just to change lives born of a thankful heart. There's so much more. It's not only that God considers us no longer being guilty for sins, not only that our relationship with God has been forever changed, it's also that our relationship to sin has been changed. To see this, let's look a little more deeply at Paul's response. <clears throat> are we to continue in sin? May it never be. He uses that same phrase, may it never be, actually 10 times in the book of Romans. What does he mean by it? It's just two words in the Greek, never be, that have been translated a bunch of different ways. I guess it's a little hard to translate it. The King James says, God forbid. The New King James says, certainly not. The New Authorized Version says, that cannot be. And the Holman Bible says, absolutely not. If you turn over to chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, I think we get a clear picture of what this phrase means. There, Paul says, God is not unrighteous, is he? May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? So here we see, of course, God is righteous. Paul says God is the very definition of righteous. He establishes the standard by which the world will be judged, and he alone is qualified to judge it. We might run up against a lot of tricky questions in life, but Paul says the answer to this one is clear. This is a fixed point, a dependable truth. We might ask the question out of some academic curiosity, but we can be assured of the answer. God is righteous. He is never unrighteous. Paul responds with that same phrase to the question, are we to continue in sin? You can ask the question, but you know even before you ask it, the answer is certain. Of course not. It doesn't make sense. It can't be true. It's impossible. It's just as impossible for a Christian to continue in sin as it is for God to be unrighteous. That's what I'm trying to say and what I believe Paul is trying to say. Why is Paul so certain of this? To begin, it's because he knows that there has been this miraculous mortality in the life of every Christian. Look at what he says in verses 6 and 7, back to Romans 6, verses 6 and 7. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. We see here when a person comes to Christ, or better said, when Christ comes to a person, a part of that person dies and the relationship to sin is changed. They're no longer a slave to sin. 
Sin shall not be master over you, says Paul in 6.14. Before Christ invades your life, you are a slave to sin. Jesus said everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. On the other hand, Jesus says, his disciples are free. If you continue in my word, Jesus says in John 8, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. This freedom is a change, change in our relationship to sin that because of Jesus' death on our behalf, we are dead to sin. And he explains this death, Paul does, in terms of a master-slave relationship. We're no longer slaves of sin. Sin is no longer master over us. Now, I don't suppose any of you has actually been a slave. I haven't, at least not in the usual sense of the word slave. A slave is someone who, whose will has been subjugated to another's. A slave is not free to do what he desires. A slave must do what his master commands. I suppose that the closest most of us get to a slave-master relationship in our common experience is the employee-employer relationship. When we're employed, right, we lose, at least in part, our freedom to do as we choose. We're required to dedicate a certain portion of our day, a certain portion of most days, to performing a certain task. Whether we want to or, or not, there are certain hours where we are required to be in a certain location. We may be required to get up earlier than we'd prefer, endure traffic jams, uh, physically or mentally exert ourselves, work with people who can be, let's say, challenging to get along with, work late to meet a deadline, and deal with stress. Many of us have supervisors or bosses who tell us what to do. Those of us who are self-employed have customers that need to be pleased. Or maybe the job itself is, is, is your master. The job itself makes demands on you that you're compelled to meet. Now I know in a capitalist society like we live in today, we have far more liber liberty than a slave would be, would have back in Paul's day. And my analogy is not perfect, but bear with me as I try to make this point. Here you are, you're working a demanding job, long hours, exhausting labor, high stress levels, difficult people, an intimidating boss. Then someone comes up to you and hands you a check for $100 million. And it's not a joke. Turns out you had a long lost relative, your great Uncle Willie who was spectacularly rich. He just passed away, and you've inherited his fortune. Boom. Your relationship to your job, your relationship to your boss, your coworkers, your relationship to your, the world around you has instantly changed. You no, you no longer need to support yourself and your family by the sweat of your brow. You no, you no longer need to submit yourself to your boss or get along with your coworkers. You no longer need to get up early, fight through the commute, burn that midnight oil. You're free. You are dead to your job. I think this is what Paul has in mind when he says in verse 7, he who has died is freed from sin. Sin is no longer master over you, no longer controls you, no longer has the power to tell you what to do. You no longer have to obey it. This is a marvelous thing. It's a miraculous thing. It's a miracle. Something only God can do. A Christian is no longer a slave to sin. But it goes deeper than this. Not only does God liberate the Christian, not only does he cause that miraculous mortality, but God also grants a miraculous motivator. This is the skip. Hop, skip, jump. The skip is that in conversion, God grants a miraculous motivator. Let me explain. If you look at verses 4 and 5 of Romans 6, Paul is giving the second half of his answer, are we to continue in sin? It's not just because a Christian is dead to sin, it's also because a Christian is given new life. Therefore, verse 4, Paul says, we have been buried with him <clears throat> through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we be have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then jump down to verse 11, where he says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here we see that accompanying that miraculous mortality, that death to sin that frees us from its mastery over us, Paul says there is granted 
a new life. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus that we might walk in newness of life. Now, what is this new life? This new life, a number of things we can tick off about it. This new life involves, involves a change of heart. If you check out verse 17, Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So this new life involves a change of heart. This new life is characterized by slavery to a new master. It says so in verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. The righteousness is now our master. And in verse 19, Paul urges us that we also need to take action. So this new life involves participation of the believer. Uh, verse 19, he says, Now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Present yourself as slaves to righteousness. And this new life also has benefits. The benefit is sanctification, and beyond that, the final result, eternal life. So Paul here is talking about this progressive purification process that has a wonderful end. It, the end is glorification. We see that in verse 22. He says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. Having been freed from sin and enslaved now to God, your new life enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. He comes right back to this after going through Romans 7 and the end of Romans 8. He comes back to this uh, line of thought where he says that those who love God are predestined to become like Jesus, predestined to be made holy, predestined to be glorified. And we know that familiar starts with a familiar verse. Sometimes we don't read the next verses that follow. There in Romans 8, 28, where Paul says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, what? He also glorified. So we see this chain, chain of events uh, that ensues when God, when God calls a man. We see that uh, when we die in Christ, we now also live in Christ. And this new life is something that God causes because he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So to this end, God changes our hearts. God makes us slaves to righteousness. He enlists our participation and he causes all things to work together. Those who are alive in Christ, Paul says, have a whole new goal. They're on a whole new path. So they're not asking, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Instead, they're asking, how can I better serve my new master? They're not asking, why bother? They're asking, what else can I do to participate in that process of being conformed to the image of Jesus? This is what the new life looks like. It represents a paradigm shift of the highest order. What makes a person go from being a slave to his pride a slave to the desires of his body, a slave to temptations of every kind, from living a life centered on himself to being a slave to righteousness, a seeker of sanctification, living a life centered on God. Why does the Christian life look this way? What's underneath this paradigm shift? What is the engine, if you will, the engine that drives this change in behavior? Paul tells us in Romans 8 that this change is driven by what I'm calling a miraculous motivator. And that motivator, which I mean in the sense of the engine, the thing that makes it go, rather the person that makes it go, that driving force, it's God himself. It's God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the Father in the believer that makes this new life possible for him to live. It, this is what makes it possible for a Christian to live a life that's pleasing to God. Look at verse 5. Uh, Romans 8. <clears throat> For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. And here it is. 
<clears throat> for the mindset on the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, okay, those who are not Christians, cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Okay, so maybe, maybe it's too obvious even for me to say it. Maybe you already know this. The difference between a believer and an unbeliever, the, the difference is the presence of God in the heart of the believer. This is the difference that is the ultimate reason for all the other differences that there may be. There are only two options that Paul gives us here. Either the Spirit dwells in us or not. If the Spirit is not in you, you are not able to walk in God's ways. Verse 7, chapter 8 that we just read. If the Spirit's not in you, you simply cannot please God. Verse 8. You are living according to the flesh. And that's Paul's shorthand notation for saying that you're living life for yourself, your desires, your self-satisfaction, your pride. And sin is your master. And in verse 13 there, chapter 8, he says, you will die. On the other hand, if the Spirit is in you, you are being led by Him, he says in verse 14. This is the good news. And being led by Him, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, verse 13. And that's Paul's shorthand notation for saying you are actively and intentionally warring against all external forces and internal tendencies that are trying to divert you from following Jesus. In other words, when we are led by the Spirit, we are not continuing in sin. We should let the implications of this sink in. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are being led by Him, and you are putting to death the deeds of the body. God's Spirit is our miraculous motivator. We bother because we are led by the Spirit. We please God because the Spirit of God dwells in us. And there's no other way to please God. You remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 15, where he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him does what? He bears much fruit. And apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says. So without Jesus in us, without his Holy Spirit motivating us, without his Spirit being the engine that makes us move, we can do nothing. Just like Paul says in Romans 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But if Jesus is in us, we can please God. We can please God. We bear much fruit, Jesus says. So as we see Paul's reasoning unfold here, we arrive at the point where we understand that it's really the unbeliever who should be asking himself, why bother? Because if the Holy Spirit is not in you, if Jesus is not living in you, if you are not being led by the Spirit of God, there's nothing you can do to please God. You might do many good deeds. You might feed the hungry. You might shelter the homeless, comfort the mourning, rescue the dying, donate to charity, win an Olympic medal, discover the cure to cancer, fund a new building at a university, build a hospital, even dive on a grenade to save your friends. But if these things are not motivated by the power of the Spirit of God at work in you, they are all for naught. But the miraculous thing is, the miraculous thing is, that if the Spirit of God is at work in you, you, me, tiny little insignificant fault-filled human beings that we are, we actually can please God. And it's not because we're intellectually, physically, or morally superior or superior in any other naturalistic sort of way, but it's because we are alive in Christ and Christ abides in us and Christ is working through us. We read it a couple Sundays ago in Ezekiel where God says in Ezekiel 36 verse 27, I, God says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to work in my statutes. This is God speaking. 
So God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And Paul says it in Philippians, a familiar verse, Philippians 2.13. He says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we see when a person is converted, when a person becomes a Christian, that conversion is the result of God putting his spirit in that person's heart of Christ taking up residence in that person, of the glory of God inhabiting that person. And the Spirit of God changes who that person is. The Spirit of God causes that person to walk in God's way. The Spirit of God works in this person to perform works that bring pleasure to God. So God himself is the engine that motivates the believer, the force that moves him. So we did the hop, the skip, now the jump. The application of these truths to our daily lives, I think, is truly profound. And I'm only going to scratch the surface here. You can go home and think about it some more. But these twin truths, that one, conversion, <clears throat> in conversion, God works a miraculous mortality. A Christian is dead to sin. And two, in conversion, God grants a miraculous motivator. A Christian has God himself working in him to do works that are pleasing to God. These twin truths change everything. And everything is changed because those of us who are under grace are no longer bound to operate according to the natural principles of this world. If we are in Christ and Christ in us, we are new creatures. We are converted creatures. And this conversion is a miraculous metamorphosis. Brings us to our final point. Conversion is a miraculous metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, it means a change in our nature. And it's miraculous because it's a change that only God can cause. It's like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We who are in Christ are not what we used to be. We are not who we used to be. We are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Now, how does this death and this new life work themselves out in our daily lives? How do we live as new creations? I thought it might be a good idea to go back to the original question that my friend asked. Why bother? If I'm honest with myself, I have to admit that I find myself actually asking this question in lots of different ways. Subconsciously, almost. For example, when I'm tempted, maybe it's a little white lie. Maybe it's a bit of gossip. Maybe it's venting my anger by chewing someone out. Maybe it's a web link that I know I shouldn't click on. Maybe it's, quote-unquote, borrowing supplies from the office at work. Maybe it's holding on to a wrong that I've suffered. Maybe it's spiteful thoughts. There are plenty of everyday things that tempt me to sin. How do I respond to these temptations? Do I say, I'm dead to sin? Sin is no longer master over me? I don't need to do this thing? Do I say, I am alive in Christ? I am not in the flesh. I am in the Spirit because the Spirit of God lives in me? Well, that's what I should say, and that's what I should think. Sometimes I do. But there are plenty of times when what I really think, what I really say to myself is, ah, why bother? Sometimes it's a conscious decision, really a sort of calculation. Right before I speak that angry word, or pause for a moment to dwell on some bitterness towards someone, or, or look at some image I know I shouldn't look at, right before I step over the line, I think to myself, well, self, you know, it's really not that big of a sin. It's only a little one. And it's just for a moment, and in the end, God is going to forgive me. So it's really not going to make any difference. What I'm really thinking is, why not continue in sin? That grace may increase. Sometimes it's a calculation. Other times, it's out of habit. Maybe I'm growing up in a Christian home, I'm so used to being forgiven that I start taking it lightly, which is really just another way of saying that we're taking God's grace lightly. How often do we presume on God's grace in this way? We get so comfortable with the idea that we are forgiven, that we are one of God's chosen. So, so comfortable that we are one of the good guys, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's not what Paul meant. So whatever I'm doing, I think, it must be okay, right? After all, I'm operating under grace. 
So cut me a little slack and let me do what I've, done, what I've got to do here. And when it's all over, God will smooth out all the rough edges and all will be forgiven and I'll see you in glory. It happens when I'm tempted, a little calculation or a little presumption, and I'm free to sin. God's grace is so amazing, why bother? It happens other times too. It happens when I'm lazy and doing the right thing, the God-honoring thing, takes just a little bit too much effort. And I say, why bother? Or when I'm legitimately exhausted from doing what is right and I think, I can't do this anymore. I've extended myself too far. It's too much. Why bother? Or when I'm suffering and everything in my flesh is crying out, why is this happening to me? This is unfair. I demand a recount, a do-over. Someone needs to set things right, right now. Why should I have to endure, endure this injustice patiently? Why should I face my trials with a Christ-like heart? Why bother? When I'm tempted, when I'm lazy, when I'm exhausted, when I'm suffering, is that really the calculation I should make? The idea that God will forgive me in the end? Is that really the presumption that I should make? God's got this. His grace is so amazing. Why bother? Is that how I should look at the world? What would Paul say? May it never be. Paul wants us to do a different calculation, to make a different presumption. And here it is in Romans 6, back to Romans 6, starting in verse 11, where Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, what? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not... Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of, of righteousness to God. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. Consider, Paul says. The Greek word logizomai he used here means to reckon, to calculate, to take into account, to reason. Paul is not saying, if you will, consider it as if. You know, you're not really dead to sin and alive to Christ, but consider yourselves as if you were and put on your game face and act the part. That's not the idea here. What he's saying is you are dead to sin. You are alive in Christ. Count on it. Take that fact into your logic, in your reasoning, in your calculations, and act on these two truths. There's been a miraculous mortality and you have a miraculous motivator. You are free to not sin and you have God himself leading and empowering you to do the right thing. So, present yourself to God as his instruments and he will use you. What does it look like to act on these truths? I just thought we'd think about the butterfly. Maybe you've heard it before, right? Every butterfly you see, you know, you see it floating so gracefully through the air. It was once a caterpillar, confined to trudge inch by inch across the ground or along a tree branch. But the caterpillar underwent a metamorphosis, and now it can fly. You, if you are in Christ, you can fly. You can please God. You can serve righteousness. You don't have to sin. You don't have to go back to crawling on the ground. You have the Spirit of God by whose power you can fly. And when you're tempted, when you're tired, when you're lazy, when you're suffering, don't give up. But also, don't think you can just suck it up and gut it out on the ground. Remember the Lord your God. Cry out to Him. He's there to lead you. He's there to make you like Jesus. He's there to work in you for His pleasure. He's there to empower you to use those wings that he's given you to serve him. Now for the non-believer, the skeptic who asks, why bother? The answer is, you don't need to bother. There's no use in bothering because there's nothing you can do to earn favor with God. Your mind is set on the flesh. You are hostile to God and you cannot please God. It's not possible. It's not in your nature. So don't bother because it's not going to do you any good. First things first. You need to be changed. So seek and submit to God. You need 
a miraculous metamorphosis that involves a miraculous mortality and a miraculous motivator. And only God can work that kind of change. And when God does change you, when you undergo that miraculous metamorphosis, it will become possible for you to please God. For those of us who have been transformed, who are now dead to sin and alive to God in Christ, our nature has been changed. And so the calculus has changed. It no longer makes sense. It no longer adds up. It's no longer logical. It's no longer consistent with our nature to not bother. We ought to be running around asking, how can I bother more? How can I not continue in sin? How can I continue in righteousness? And as God continues to transform us day by day, we will become more and more obedient, not out of a sense of needing to earn God's favor, not out of a sense of having to pay back a debt, not out of dread over what God will do to us if we don't, not even out of a sense that God will reward us. Rather, as God transforms us, we will become more like him, more like Christ, and we will obey from the heart, as Paul says in verse 17, Romans 6. And we will serve in newness of the Spirit, as Paul says in uh, chapter 7, verse 6. Because why? Because we are being led by the Spirit, as we read in Romans 8. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, if God is for us, who is against us? God loves us, Paul says, and he has changed us, and he is continuing to change us to make us more like Jesus. And so no matter what happens, we who are in Christ will bother because that is who we are in Christ, because Christ is in us. We will bother because as Paul says in Galatians 2, we have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we we who live, it is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. We thank you for the fact of the new life that you give us in Christ Jesus. We are also humbled by these truths, Lord, because we know that we are not worthy of it ourselves. We know there's nothing in, in ourselves that has made us uh, worthy to receive such a spectacular, fabulous gift of that new life. Father, we just rejoice in what you have given us. As we celebrate this Christmas season, let us, let us rejoice in the freedom that we have from sin. We are dead from sin. What a wonderful truth. And we are alive in Christ. Lord, we just thank you and we praise you for these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.